0: Let's, let's go ahead and move into session three. So we're going to look at the, the second two virtues of a biblical man. So the first was he is a bold leader. The second was he is a sound theologian. And here is the third. And I'll wait because everybody's kind of coming. What's it going to be? I didn't put letters in there so you could figure it out. I know sometimes the fill in the blanks is like, I can figure it out if it's a letter. Okay, here it is. A virtuous man is a loving protector, a loving protector. Now, we talked about bold leadership. We also need to be loving protectors. In Genesis 2.15, we looked at that earlier. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it that Hebrew word to keep it means to guard the garden to protect the garden to prevent any harm coming to his wife namely the serpent what should have adam done two things adam should have done number 1 he should have guarded the garden so the serpent never got in he should have been protecting his wife When the serpent got in, what's the thing he should have done at that moment? Yep, killed the serpent. He did not lovingly protect the garden and lovingly protect his wife from the spiritual attacks of the enemy upon her. So we were created as men to be protectors, especially of our wives and children, to love them by protecting them. Ephesians five twenty eight through twenty nine. Paul says, "In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." There's there's two verbs there that Paul talks about how men are to relate specifically to our wives: nourish and cherish your wife. Okay, the word nourish means to. Bring to maturity. Let me ask you a question, men, that are married. I know some of you aren't married yet. Is your home a greenhouse where your wife flourishes? Or is your house a cesspool where your wife stagnates? I know those are like really obvious graphic pictures, but you are to be bringing your wife to maturity, to lead her, to protect her, to help her grow and flourish the same way you would your own body, the way you'd nourish your own body. I mean, you exercise your own body, you go to the gym, you eat right, hopefully you're doing all these things to take care of your own body. Much more you to do that with your wife, to nourish. So so the the word nourish there really means to, to focus on her maturity and her physical protection, but there's another word there, to cherish. Cherish focus is more on the emotional relationship you have with your wife. To comfort, to, to really to show tenderness. So let me say this, men. You may disagree with me, but I've, in all the years I've done premarital counseling and marital counseling, I ask wives this question and it never fails. Okay. One of the chief needs of your wife, one of them, not the main one, One of the chief needs of your wife is security. She needs to feel secure, protected, cherished, loved, secure financially, secure emotionally, secure spiritually. And so, husbands, are you promoting the security of your wife? Are you protecting her? Are you loving her? Does your wife know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you value her above all human relationships, even your children? Okay, 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, the weaker vessel does not mean the wife is inferior. It does not mean that she's a second than or less than. It just means that naturally God has created men and women differently. Wives are smaller. They're, they don't have the same muscle structure as men. We are to be the protectors, the stronger ones, to love and protect our wives. So one of the ways that you can protect your wife is providing that spiritual, emotional relational strength and security to her physically, emotionally, spiritually, but as a loving protector, do you protect your wife and your children from the attacks of Satan, secular culture, and ideologies that will harm them? Being a loving protector means you are protecting your family, you're protecting your wives from the attacks of Satan, ideologies, isms that would come and attack your family. And here's the issue, guys. This is where I'm going to get real personal with you. The key to protecting your family is protecting your own heart. You cannot protect your family unless you protect your own heart. How in the world are you going to protect them if you don't pre- Now, what does it mean to protect your heart? Okay, I'm going to give you a tragic example of a father who did not protect his heart, and his family paid dearly for it. So turn with me to Joshua chapter 7. This is the story of Achan. If you remember, Joshua and the Israelites had crossed the Jordan River. They had taken the city of Jericho. They're in the beginning campaign of taking the promised land from the Philistines and the Canaanites and all of the the ites. And then you get to chapter 7, where they conquered the town of Ai. So let's just, we're not going to read this entire thing, but just look at chapter 7, verse 1. But the people, this is Joshua 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith, that's key, broke faith, In regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Here's what was to happen. They were supposed to go in and just destroy the city. Achan gets greedy and sees these trinkets, sees this silver and gold, and he takes it, and he hides it in his tent. And the Lord is angry with the people for his greed, his theft his lust for things as opposed to obeying the Lord. And so we see in verse 21, so go down to verse 21. When I saw among the spoil they're they're questioning him. Let's let's go back to verse 20. Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sent against the Lord God of Israel, this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them, and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with silver underneath. He broke faith, he coveted, he stole, and what happened as a result of what he did? Read 18 through 25. Let's just keep reading. Pick up in verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkey and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with fire, and they stoned him with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Achan didn't protect his heart. He coveted. He stole He paid dearly, and his family paid dearly. That's obviously an Old Testament example of corporate solidarity where Achan's family gets punished because of Achan. We don't necessarily have that, uh, you know, in the New Testament, but the principle is the same. The decisions you make as a dad will impact your family, both positively and negatively. So you must protect your own heart. Okay, so fathers, husbands, lovingly protect your wives, Protect your own heart. But also, fathers, one of the ways you protect your children is through discipline. You may not think that you're actually protecting children when you discipline them, but when you discipline children, you are actually protecting them. Ephesians 6, four. fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. These ideas of discipline. You've got Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Yeah. Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Proverbs 29, 17, do discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. In 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Discipline and instruction are you protecting your own heart as a way to protect your family another tragic example of a father who did not discipline his children was Eli Eli was the priest you remember his two sons first Samuel 2 12 through 17 now the sons of Eli were worthless men they did not know the Lord the custom of the priest with the people was that when the man offered sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron and pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said, let them burn the fat and then take it as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sins of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So what Eli's sons were doing is this. They were priests. They were the pastors, if you will. And what they were doing is they were bribing the people when they would come to the temple and they were having intimate relations with prostitutes. These were the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel. And here's the thing. Here's the condemning thing about Eli in 1 Samuel 3.13. I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the injury that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Eli knew what his sons were doing. He knew that they were breaking faith. He knew they were being sexually immoral. He knew, but he didn't stop them. He was a passive dad that just said, "Let them do what they want to do." He was not showing protective leadership in restraining his sons. Proverbs 4:23, "Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life." You are a loving protector, But you got to protect your own heart first, and then you protect your wife and protect your kids in a loving way. So that's the third virtue. Are you a loving protector? And here's number four. So let's just recap. Bold leader, sound theologian, loving protector. And here's number four. A virtuous man is a wise investor. And I'm not talking about money, per se. Let me just ask you some questions that maybe you've never thought of. Do you have a life mission or personal vision statement for you as a man and for your family that's written down of how you're going to lead, protect, and provide? Are you building for the future? Are you investing in eternity? Are you leaving a legacy that will outlive you? See, here's what I believe happens. Men thrive when given a noble goal that demands sacrifice and commitment. Men want to be challenged. The problem is we're just not challenging them. If, 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 if we're faced with sacrifice and commitment, we will thrive because that's what we were meant to do. We were meant to lead. We were meant to, to achieve. We were meant to protect. We we're meant to, to be bold. We we're meant to sacrifice, to be loving protectors. And so this investment involves not only just financial stewardship. I mean, you don't want to go in debt. You want to provide for your family. You want to be a good, a good, wise financial person. But it also means you have a long-term vision. You're building for the future. You're building in your church. You're building in your community. Your, your goals aren't for you to just get richer and more successful, but you're investing in a long term vision. So the question is this. The question is not whether you're making investments. You are. The real question is what kind of investments? You're spending time. You're spending energy. You're spending money. You're spending capital. The question is, in whom are you investing? What kind of investments are you making? Paul gives us a model here in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others. There's four generations of discipleship in this passage. Paul teaches Timothy. Timothy is to find faithful men who can then entrust to faithful men. You got, you got, a, you got four, four levels. And then the cycle just keeps going on. So you as a man are called to be instrumental and entrusting the faith to the next generation? And, and I've asked this question a lot to men, and it, the answer saddens me sometimes. And I don't want you to raise your hand, but I want you to think about this. Has somebody personally discipled you in your life and walked alongside you to mentor you to be a better husband, father, man? I was blessed I had a godly father who was a pastor that mentored me as a dad. I had a youth pastor (coughs) that mentored me. I had my first, I had a college minister that mentored me. And then when I served as a youth pastor under the first pastor I served under, he mentored me. So I have four men in my life that I still have relationships with that have personally invested and mentored in me that have made me who I am today. I would not be the man that I am today without those four men. And I find that to be very rare. But you have an opportunity to change that. Who are you investing in? How much time, energy, and emotional capital are you investing in your wife, your children? Do you have a long-term vision? See, godly men are planners for the future. James four thirteen through 17, come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. Now, you need to make plans. But God may change those plans because he's sovereign, but you're still a planner. Now, I've talked a lot about husbands, dads, fathers, but let's just, as we bring this to a close, we must also invest in other men who can be our friends. We need other men. Too many men are living in isolation in loneliness. Proverbs 18.1 Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Now, I want you to think about David and Jonathan for a moment here. In 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 5, as soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped him of his robe and gave to David his armor and even his sword, bow, and belt. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, notice that this this is uncomfortable language for men, okay? Jonathan and David's souls were knit together. Now, Modern scholarship, modern liberal scholarship, you will hear this. It's blasphemous, but what some people have said is that this was a homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan. Now, we can reject that for two reasons. Let me give you the two reasons why you can reject that as not being biblical at all. Number one, the word used for loved here, that David loved Jonathan, in the original language, is never used for homosexual activity anywhere in the Old Testament. Not even used for any type of heterosexual relationship. It is a word used specifically for a platonic friendship between men. That's what the Hebrew word means. So it cannot mean that just from the Hebrew word itself. So men, here's the point. You should not be afraid to have deep connections with other men. David and Jonathan had deep connections. It was platonic. It was healthy. It was a deep relationship based upon friendship. But we also can reject that because this comes right on the heels of David killing Goliath. And he had been anointed by the Holy Spirit to kill the Philistine. And what did the Philistine do? Goliath was blaspheming God. And so David killed him for blaspheming God. How in the world would David turn around and do something blasphemous? David was a man of the covenant. He would not break God's law. So what you see in this relationship between David and Jonathan is extreme humility because Jonathan is the rightful son of the king, and he strips himself of his robe and lays it before David as a symbolic act of saying, I'm submitting to you as a humble friend. I'm really the one that should be elevated as the king's son, but I know that you're the anointed, and so I am bowing before you as my friend. So we see three elements of friendship here. Between David and Jonathan. Number one, their friendship was rooted in their love for God. You cannot have deep lasting friendships without Christ as the center. Christ needs to be the center of these friendships. Number two, their friendship was marked by genuine commitment and loyalty. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a fair-weathered thing. They, they were loyal to the very end. They were committed. They actually sealed it in blood when they cut a covenant. You go back and read that entire text, and really they were blood brothers, if you will. And then number three, their friendship demonstrated humility. There was no jockeying for position. Jonathan respected and submitted to David. They were both humble. And you know this Proverbs twenty seven seventeen: Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. So, we bring this thing to a close here. What do we conclude from these four virtues? When men act like biblical men, guess what? Women will follow. Why? That's how they're made. How they're made. Christian women are naturally attracted to godly leadership, courage, and a man with conviction. The Bible teaches us that God made men to lead and women to follow godly men. So let's go back and retrace our steps of what we've talked about this morning, okay? I know this is, I know it was just a few hours ago, but um, let's just look at these, these things like telescope out. Okay, so number one, what do we talk about? You find your identity in Jesus Christ. You can't do any of this without a personal relationship with Christ as your Savior. So ultimately, it's your identity in Christ, and then also, the joy of the is your strength. You are a joyful warrior. You have the joy of the Lord as your strength. You're an oak of righteousness planted for God's glory. You do all things for the glory of God. You're planted deep. You're strong. You're a man of righteousness. You're an oak. You're a builder. You're a rebuilder. There's ruins in the culture, and you're wanting to rebuild what has been lost and leave a legacy for a future generation as a builder. And then those four things we looked at, you're a bold leader, You're a sound theologian, you're a loving protector, and you're a wise investor. And why do you do all of this? For your own glory? No, you do it all for two things, okay? You do it for the glory of God and the good of others. That's what we really should be doing, all things for the glory of God and the good of others.